0: How you view the people that you come into contact with on a daily basis says or informs a lot about how you will approach them. I actually heard of a a scientific study once that was very intriguing to me. It found that people who expect the people they come into contact with to like them end up treating other people much more warmly. It's just, it's just it, I expect that you'll like me, so therefore I will treat you in a warm way, not in a reserved or a shy or an off-putting way. And guess what this self-repeating prophecy is? When you are warmer with people, people tend to like you more. And so it is actually this kind of, as I said, self-fulfilling prophecy. You expect people to like you, so you treat them more warmly, When you treat them more warmly, they actually like you, and the cycle repeats itself. It's just an interesting thing about how uh, we are programmed, if you will, to respond to others. I also want to point out that the way you treat someone who is unfamiliar or potentially inaccessible has everything to do with your view of who that person is. I'll give you an example. This last week I was... Appearing in front of a judge in a place called Delaware, and this judges—the judges there are called vice chancellors—but they are nonetheless wear fancy black robes and are very officious. They are very formal. This court is an extremely formal court. We we learned that um, any presenting attorney there. It's an unwritten rule they're expected to wear only a a, a white shirt, no blue shirts, no pink shirts, none of that nonsense, white shirts. I mean, we're talking totally buttoned up. So this vice chancellor we've appeared in front of before, we don't know him extremely well. And it's always a little bit nervous around a judge you don't know. Well, on the other side of the courtroom was a judge who, a, a lawyer who had appeared in front of this judge a lot and was a buddy of his. Guess how he was able to relate to the judge? Slightly different than I would feel out from Minnesota dealing with this judge. They just had a natural rapport. Jokes were cracked. Laughter was exchanged. Why? Because he knew him. Simple point. How you know someone affects how you relate to them and how you approach to them. And now I want to talk about God. A.W. Tozer wrote this, "What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us." What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, What he's saying is everything about your spiritual life, about your relationship to God, or even in a just taking a world religion sense, every nation, what they think about God, they will not rise above that. And you will not rise above your view of who God is as you perceive him. And therefore tonight, I want to ask a critical question about your view of God about who God fundamentally is. And I often know that sometimes you children think that perhaps I'm speaking to your parents, but tonight I'm speaking to you too. What do you think of when you think of God? This is an important question because think of the ways that our culture thinks about God. Think about the ways we speak about him. Have you ever heard someone refer to him as the big guy upstairs? What do we think of when God, to us, is the big guy upstairs? What about when we think of God, as he is sometimes depicted in cartoons, of the kind of elderly gentleman with the big, long, white beard, the kind of general, genial, happy disposition? What do we think of if that's the picture of God that comes into our mind? we need to make sure that what we think about God is not culturally informed, but is biblically informed. That we are thinking about God the way he has told us or invited us to think about him in the context of his word. And so tonight I want to ask one question and then seek to answer it biblically from multiple passages as we have read already tonight. And my question for you tonight is, when you think about God, is God accessible? Is God accessible? Now, I don't want you to begin by going immediately to the theological answer, or the biblical answer, if if, if you allow me to say that. I don't want you just to run to the right answer you learned in Sunday school. Like, oh yeah, God, of of course he's accessible. We can come to him. No, I want you to know about the way you relate to him. You think about him. You talk to him during the day. Is God accessible? And we're going to do that by looking first at the example of the Old Testament that is provided for us in Exodus chapter 19, and Exodus 20. The title of the message tonight is simply that. Is God accessible? Is God accessible? That does, d- simply means, can we access him? Can we come before him? And I want to start with the first point tonight that I'm going to call God at Sinai. God at Sinai. Because there's a couple interesting things that we should note about God at Sinai that at least will cause us to wrestle with some concepts. Can we just introduce this point by saying, God doesn't really appear very accessible at Sinai, does he? He doesn't appear very inviting, does he? Let's get into it and see if we can understand what I mean. Start with me in verse 16, will you? The children of Israel, chapter 19 of Exodus, are now at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. God calls them to come and assemble together around the mountain. He has a message for them. He is going to descend and appear to them. And he's going to communicate to them personally, not through a mediator, his mediator Moses, but through himself. And notice what it says in verse 16. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. You can just imagine this massive host of people coming out surrounding the mountain. They stood at the nether part of the mount, and Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke. It was smoking. Have you ever seen those uh, videos of volcanoes, active volcanoes? The incredible power of fire, of lava inside, billowing up smoke. I mean, can you imagine the most terrifying sight that you have ever witnessed? Now multiplied by 10 at least. And this entire mountain is smoking. It is thundering. It is lightning. And one thing that maybe you hadn't thought of before, the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud this was not a human trumpet. We're talking about a divine trumpet blast loud enough that I'm sure people would have been plugging their ears. So in other words, what were the people of Israel seeing when God descended? They saw, they smelled, undoubtedly, the smoke, and they heard this blast of a trumpet Now look at verse 18 again of Exodus chapter 19. The Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, it grew louder and louder. Moses spake and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount. And Moses went up. Notice again what's going on here. This is God appearing to his people in fire, in smoke, in lightning, in thunder, in all these physical signs at a particular place, at a particular moment in time, Mount Sinai. God descends. But I want you to notice the second thing that's important about God at Sinai is that God distances God distances. Notice verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, command the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. And Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain sanctified. And the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down. And thou shalt come up thou and Aaron with thee, but let not the priests and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. Again, picture this. God is rendering himself inaccessible. He's saying, no one come close. Everyone keep your distance. Don't even touch the mount or you die. This mount is so separated by my presence. It is so sanctified by my presence that there will not one person, but Moses and Aaron will be allowed to approach near to me. Can you even imagine the holy terror as the people of Israel see this sight And are instructed, don't you dare. We're putting fences around this. So no one can get close to the presence of God. Thundering and lightning and smoking. God descends. God distances. And notice third, the people draw back. Go ahead to chapter 20, will you? And let's look at verse 18. After God has given the Ten Commandments... Look at verse number 18. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed. They backed up. And they stood afar off. Listen to this, verse 19. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. What did they perceive? They perceived that not only was God inaccessible to them, He was a danger to them. If God continues speaking to us in this overwhelming matter, we might die. So God, don't, God, don't let God speak to us anymore. Moses, you speak to us. Now, I want you to notice here, this is a response of terror. It is a response of overwhelming fear and trembling at the presence of a holy God. And then notice here what Moses says in verse 20. Fear not. Oh, well, that's the good comfort, isn't it? Hey, guys, don't be afraid here. Nothing to see here. For God has come to prove you, to test you, and that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. Do you know there are two kinds of fear in this verse? We could could spend an entire sermon on this alone. There is a fear of God that drives you away from him, and there is a fear of God that makes you not sin against him. And unless you know the difference between those two fears, you're not going to have a very strong relationship with God. God said, why did I do this? Don't be afraid, but I want you to be afraid. <laughs> I want your fear to be, my fear to be before your faces. Think about that a little bit in your own life. Verse 21, And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near under the thick darkness where God was. Again, is God accessible at Sinai? No! Is God dangerous at Sinai? Yes! Okay. So let's deal with that. Let's grapple with that for just a moment. How does that relate to you? Is God accessible to you? Is he dangerous to you? Only Moses was the one who could go to the thick darkness, the separating darkness... Where God was in his holy presence. This is God at Sinai, and it was terrifying to the people who saw it for the first time. And that's why, secondly, I want to create what to me is just a staggering contrast. And I'm gonna call it God in his son. God at Sinai is wholly inaccessible, quite dangerous. Who is God in His Son? Let's go through those three same ideas that we talked about before. God descends. How did He descend on Sinai? Thunder, lightning, smoke, a loud trumpet. How did He descend in His Son? He descended in the form of an infant. He descended as a baby in the least threatening, most approachable form. But not only when he became as a baby. If you look at the life of Jesus, everything about Jesus was about being as accessible as possible. He did not come with any beauty to him that would cause people to say, well, I can't approach to him. He's, he's too good looking. He is intimidating. He, he did not come with wealth that would separate him from us. He did not come with prestige. He did not come with a kind of blinding, dazzling intellectual prowess that would make everyone fall down before his intimidating presence. He laid aside anything that would make him less approachable. As Isaiah says, there is no form or comeliness that we should desire him. This is how God descended in his son. God with us. Emmanuel. What a contrast from how God descended at Sinai. And now I want you to notice that in Jesus, God is not distancing himself from us. He is drawing toward us. Think again about what Jesus came. How he came was that he did not separate from sinners. He pursued sinners. Remember in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, here's what Jesus said. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. To seek. What did God say at Sinai? Everyone stay away from the mount where my presence is. What did God say in his Son? Where are the sinners? I'll find them. I came to seek them. Do you remember in Mark chapter 2, where we studied in this series on Mark, when Jesus heard the complaints about the Pharisees, how can he be eating with these publicans and sinners, these tax cheats and sinners? Here's what he said. He said, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Isn't it an interesting thing? That the most religious people of Jesus' day were the ones who most missed his message? Here's Here's a little Bible trivia question for you. Kids don't listen. Then your parents can ask you this for a trivia question later. Does anyone know what the word Pharisee actually means? What it literally means in the Greek? Does anyone know? Oh, I've covered it in a sermon before, folks. I'm so disappointed. No one knows? The word Pharisee literally means separated. Huh. Doesn't that explain so much about what the Pharisees actually were? I am separated from the rest of you sinners. I am set apart in my holiness toward God. I am the party of the separatist ones. And Jesus came to earth to seek and to save sinners and it went, they rejected him because he wasn't separatist like they were. You see, friends, your view of God matters a lot. Your view of God matters an awful lot to the way you relate to other people in the way that Jesus did. Now, so God not only descends in a completely different way than he did on Sinai, not only does he draw toward people in a completely different way than he distanced at Sinai, but interestingly, at Sinai, the people drew back. And in Jesus, they are invited to what? Draw near. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 11 and verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come! God at Sinai says, "Stay away, and the people draw back." And in Jesus, the Son of God, He says, "Come unto me." and don't, 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 get, don't miss this. This is not Jesus just speaking about himself as Emmanuel, God with us. Think about how God presented His Father to us. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, "Ask, and ye shall receive. Seek." And ye shall find, knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. Why? Because your heavenly Father is like even a bad father among you. If you all, just being a normal earthly father, give good gifts to people, how much more will your Father give to you when you come to Him? He said, oh, you're worrying? You're worrying about your clothing? You're worrying about your food? Don't you know that your Father in Heaven knows you have need of all those things before you even ask Him? What is he saying? Your father up there is a father who delights for you to draw near to him, to approach him. Huh. So what does it mean that God at Sinai descended in a totally inaccessible way? Distanced himself in a totally inaccessible way, causing the people to draw back in terror and in fear. And now in his Son, God descends in the most approachable of forms. He draws in the most accessible of ways, causing men and women to draw near to him. As Hebrews puts it, in a true heart with full assurance of faith. You say, what's the difference? The third point that I want to talk about tonight is God in you. God at Sinai God in his son, and now God in you. Friend, is God accessible? How do you relate to God? How do you think of God? Do you know there's a, couple, there's a couple things that we could say about this. How do we explain this contrast? First question we need to answer, has God changed? Do you know, friends, there would be people today who would say, yes, he has. God is different today than he was in that old Stern, Old Testament period. Oh, he changed at the cross. He's a really nice guy now. Do You know, friends, that runs sc- smack dab into the teaching of the, of the New Testament. James 1, verse 17 says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness. There's no variation in him. And there is no shadow of turning in God. God doesn't change. He's the same God He was at Mount Sinai. Not only that, if you're thinking about the the inaccessibility of God in His divine essence, think about 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16. Speaking of God, Paul says, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, Do you know to this day, God in his essence is in a light that none of us could approach unto and that we would fall down if we were to see it with these eyes like a dead man? That is our God. He is the same God that he was at Sinai. Okay, so if God hasn't changed, we should ask, what else hasn't changed? And here's what hasn't changed. What hasn't changed is God's view of sin. That's what hasn't changed. What God was doing at Sinai, he told his people, I am doing this so that my fear will be before your faces, so that what? You will not sin. What was the context of what God was doing at Sinai? He was coming down to give His divine law, His moral judgments, saying, Do this. This is how you must approach to Me. This is My demands on humanity. And in God's holiness, in His purity, this blinding, inaccessible nature of God, was revealed to his people, causing them to tremble and to draw back in light of the holiness of God. And friends, that part of God has not changed. He is just as set against your sin as he was back then. He is just as fierce and as terrifying and as dangerous to this world's sin as he was when he was at Sinai and friend if we could see if we could see how God would descend if he were to come down once again like he did on Sinai and address the sin of our country alone address the sin of our lives alone we would see that our God has not changed you think of Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah was confronted with the holiness of God, and the temple was shaking and filled with smoke, and those the seraphims were chanting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the earth is full of His glory, and what, it, what was Isaiah confronted with? His own sin. He said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts that god is the same god that you worship today and can I say in that sense he is every bit as inaccessible in that sense as he was at Mount Sinai what I say to you tonight friends is that in this world in which sometimes we have, we allow this kind of kind, elderly grandpa figure to stand in for God. He's like your grandpa who always gives you treats and warm cookies and milk, and he is just the most approachable, nice guy. Friend, that's not how the Bible speaks of God in his holiness, and it is settled opposition to sin, and we shouldn't think anything different. And if our view needs to be tweaked tonight, let's make sure we're doing that in our view of God biblically. And this is why I want to turn to Exodus chapter 12. Because as we close tonight, I think it's important for us to bring in this Old Testament view of God at Sinai and combine it with a New Testament view of who God is in His Son. And I think we're going to see something really special, and I hope really encouraging to you. Let's start in verse number 18. The entire book of Hebrews is encouraging these Hebrew Christians to continue on in their faith. And He says to them by way of, yes, warning, but also encouragement, He says, for ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched. What mount is he referring to? Mount Sinai, the one we were just looking at. You are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words. That's exactly what we were just looking at in Exodus 19 and 20. Which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not ignore, endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Even Moses was confronted with the terror of God. But look at verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Friend, if God hasn't changed... And His holy nature still burns against sin to the very same degree that He did at Sinai. What has changed? What has changed is this. You have a mediator who's better than Moses. That's what's changed. You have come to Mount Zion, as He says, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, not the old covenant that was given at Sinai the new covenant that we will celebrate tonight in communion in the Lord's Supper that was inaugurated in his body and in his blood. You have one who has gone between you and a holy God and in him you are invited. The doors open. Come in. Did you ever consider the fact, friend, that when Jesus died, On that cross, darkness came over the world at the third hour. I'm sorry, at the ninth hour, was it? What a remarkable thing. When the sixth hour was come, there was darkness, Mark 15 says, over the whole land until the ninth hour. Do you remember where God and his presence was at Sinai? It was in the thick darkness. And thick darkness came over all the land, As God descended in his perfect holiness to exercise the horrors of Mount Sinai on his innocent son. What was happening in that darkness, the darkness of those three hours, was that God's holiness meted out true justice against his innocent sacrifice, his son. The mountain of His holy demands have now been summited, have now been crested by His Son, Jesus Christ. And as a result, that Mount Sinai, if you will, has been cleared away. The legal demands of God given in the Ten Commandments have now been fulfilled. God has not changed, but his demands for humanity have been satisfied by his Son. Friends, what does it do to you in your love for Jesus when you realize that on that cross, he drew back, if you will? Or God more accurately drew back from him. And he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus experienced the holiness of God. Like the holiness of God was revealed at Mount Sinai. And he did it for you. That is the gospel And now we have a mediator who goes between us and a holy God. And look at what Hebrews 12 says about him. He is the mediator of the new covenant, but also we come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You say, what is he talking about there? Well, one chapter before in Hebrews 11, he gave the example of Abel. Abel was killed and now he, be he being dead yet speaketh. What did Abel's blood say? What did Abel's blood say? Remember what God said to Cain? Your brother's blood does what? It cries to me from the ground. That's what Abel's blood said. It spoke of what? Judgment! Judgment! I saw a heartbreaking article several years ago about a six-year-old girl named Anaya Allen on 35th and Penn over North. She was coming back from McDonald's. I think her grandma was driving her. And they happened to drive through a period of of gang crossfire and a bullet went through the car and struck this precious six-year-old in the head and she died. And I made a note of what I saw in that article her grandpa who was an activist even even going trying to eliminate guns was just taken by this horror and he said and i'm just paraphrasing he said all i want to know now is who did this Who did this? Why? Because Aniah Allen's blood was crying out for justice. It was crying out for judgment. And what what, what Hebrews 12 is telling us is Abel's blood was speaking for judgment. But what is Jesus' blood speaking? His blood is speaking better things. What better things? It is the same thing, I think that Charles Wesley wrote when he wrote the wonderful hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. Listen to these words. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. What is the blood of Jesus Christ crying out for you today before a holy God? It is crying out, this sin has been paid. This salvation has been purchased. Forgive him, Lord. And we now have a high priest who ever lives to make intercession with us before that holy, otherwise inaccessible God who descended on Mount Sinai in smoke and fire thousands of years ago. And friend, when the Son of God is interceding on your behalf, that same God at Mount Sinai becomes the one who says, the door is always open to the friends of my Son, My holy place is always available for those who are coming with the intercession of my Son. That is why Hebrews 10 tells us, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let's get practical for a minute. Is God accessible? Not without His Son. He's dangerous. He's holy. He's separated from sinners. And what Mount Sinai should reveal to us, friend, is the fate of anyone who tries to approach God through man-made religion, who thinks that by doing a little better next time, who trying a little harder, for working a little harder, we will be able to approach to God and please him. No. No that God, that approach, will be wholly inaccessible. The same God at Mount Sinai thunders in his holiness today. But on the same hand, when you come to him in his Son, when you come to him in trust in Jesus Christ who submitted himself to those holy demands and sacrificed himself for you, you are guaranteed access. You have a Father who delights in you and loves to give you good things for the sake of his Son and his love for you. And so what does that mean practically for you? One thing it means for sure, I hope, that you take from tonight is this. How much do you value your mediator? How much do you prize who Jesus is and what he has done for you? That the God at Sinai is, in your experience, the God in his son who invites you in. You know, I had a thought of this. If you were to go downtown one evening the building that I usually work in is lit up orange in the sky. It's a very tall, imposing, intimidating biz, um, a building. If you were to walk up at night, you'd, you'd rattle the door. You'd never be able to get in. There would be a security guard standing there, glowering at you through the window. What do you want? Get away from here. The whole building is wholly inaccessible. Unless you're me. Or John, too. John. And then in that case, guess what? I have an ID card. And I can walk up there at any time of day or night. And I just give it a little beep right there at the light. And the door opens and I walk in. And I go through the revolving doors and I wave at the security guard. Hey there, buddy. How you doing? Good to see you. And suddenly the building is accessible to me. I can go freely. Why? Because I have the card. Because I have the access card. And what I want each of you to think about tonight is that from the moment you leave here and from the moment you wake up tomorrow morning and every single day this week, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have the access card. So use it. So come to Him tomorrow morning not like he's the God at Sinai from whom you're separated by your sin. Oh, you still are a sinner, and I am too, but I have the access card to him. And so what I do is, when I get down on my knees in the morning, I better swipe the access card. I better bow my knee before him and say, God, I'm a sinner, but I'm coming to you on the ground of your son who died for me, and therefore I come boldly into your presence this morning and know that you are hearing me. I'm ready to have fellowship with you. Friends, let's not have a Mount Sinai view when we're in Christ. God is not the one thundering and smoking and keeping you away from his presence. He's the one, if you are in his son, who's welcoming you and inviting you in because his perfect son is interceding always for you. Ephesians 2.18 says this, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Is God accessible? Oh, at Sinai he's not. But in his son he is. And now I hope that this week in very practical ways you will take advantage of the access that you have and go boldly to spend time with him.